Good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for having my wife Kelly and I back with you this morning as we continue to walk through Paul's letter to Titus. So if you have your copy of the Bible, please open up to Titus chapter 1, and we will just walk through Titus this morning. Just to signpost where we've been and where we're going this morning and also next week. So last week we talked briefly about the first three verses in Titus chapter 1. And this morning we're going to try and get from Titus chapter 1 verses 4 through 8. And we're going to talk about the qualifications and the requirements for selection of elder. And then next week we're going to talk about the, um, what the elders are required to do in the context of the body. Just to summarize what we talked about last time from Titus chapter 1, if you look with me at verse 5, you will see really the context of the whole letter. Paul's whole letter to Titus, the context is very important because as we read these verses, we can see why Paul is writing them to Titus. So let's look at verse 5 because that establishes the context. This is why I left you in Crete, the island of Crete. Paul left Titus there so that he might do two things. And we're going to talk about both things this morning. Number one, we're going to put what remains in order. And the second thing he's going to do is appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So that's the overriding theme. Now one way to look at that theme is everything we read should be read through that lens so we can know exactly what Paul was telling Titus to do to set what remains in order. And two things we talked about last time, one is found in verse number one, and that is that everything that's done in the local church is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. You can see that in verse one. What that means to me is that when we orchestrate and plan our local church services, we do it in the mind of discipling believers so that they can go out and do the work of the ministry. There may be times where people who are unbelievers are in our midst, but we don't plan our services around those times. We want to equip the saints to go out and do the work of the ministry. The second thing we talked about in verse 3 is at the proper time, God manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. And we spent some time developing the idea that preaching is a declarative, authoritative pronouncement of the Word of God. And we said that's what John the Baptist did in the wilderness. He went about proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what we do behind the sacred desk here. My responsibility is to preach the Word of God, and that's what I will be doing this morning. Now, let's get into verse 4. And, and we can see here clearly that Titus is written, or that Paul wrote this letter to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And we're going to take a few minutes and we're going, to, we're going to ask ourselves, what was it about Titus that caused Paul to put this kind of responsibility on his shoulders? Now, keep in mind that by the time Paul and Titus were at this stage of this ministry at Crete, Paul had many opportunities to observe Titus, his character, his lifestyle, 
how he would react under pressure. And so he wrote down at least four things in other writings about Titus that we can look at right now and we can examine and we can say, oh, this is what it was about Titus. Number one, and you'll have these in your notes, I left some blanks for you to fill out, but number one, Titus provided rest for Paul. This is quite amazing, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul wrote, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus. Number two, Titus provided comfort for Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus. Number three, pretty important here, Titus had a contagious joy. 2 Corinthians 7.13, Paul wrote, Therefore, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus. And then number four in your notes, Titus was Paul's partner and his fellow worker in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8.23, as for Titus, he's my partner and my fellow worker in the gospel. For all these reasons, we can see why Paul put the kind of faith and confidence he did in Titus to leave him at the island of Crete to put what remains in order. He was that kind of a person. So let's apply this. Let's apply this to ourselves. What about you? What about me? How do our lives live up and match these characteristics? Number one, are we people of joy? Do we have a contagious joy? Do we provide rest and comfort to people when they're around us? Or are we more of a burden to people? Are we, do we consider ourselves, a partner and fellow worker in the gospel with other people here in the church? I want to illustrate this. Several years ago, many years ago, in fact, I was a new deacon, and I was at the hospital to do a hospital visit. And there was a, it was a grave situation. The guy that I was there to meet, and I didn't know this at the time, but he would later die that day. As a new deacon, I was not equipped to handle like, the weight of this responsibility or to minister the family in this circumstance. But guess what? I was there at the hospital to do that, to minister to this family. So I was going to go into the room and do my absolute best. Out of the corner of my eye, before I went into the room, I saw my friend Brian come around the corner. He was an elder at the church. And I've never been so glad to see another human being in all my life. Have you ever been in that situation? Why? Because Brian did, for me, what Titus did for Paul. He provided immediate reassurance to me, immediate joy, and he was my partner and my fellow worker in ministry. So we were able to together go into that room and minister these same things to the family to provide some measure of rest, comfort, and joy as fellow workers for the gospel. And that's what we need to do for each other in the context of the local church when we are ministering. It's very much a two-by-two two thing. There's no... I loved the show The Lone Ranger when I was a kid. Anyone else watch that black and white show? I loved that show. But Lone Ranger even had... That's right, Tano. I mean, there really, he was not a Lone Ranger. The, the biggest misnomer in television broadcast history. So that's Titus. That's why 
Paul put so much confidence and faith in Titus. We've walked through those, those characteristics that he had. The second thing I want to note from verse 4 is so important. And that is, Paul's writing this letter to Titus, my true child in a common faith. You might circle that phrase, a common faith, in your Bible. We're going to ask ourselves this morning, what exactly is a common faith? faith. Jude, in Jude, verse 3, it was called our common salvation. What is our common salvation? What is a common faith? What must a person believe to share in this common faith? What doctrine must we hold to? In 1881, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on just three verses. The whole sermon was on three verses. What is a common salvation? And in that sermon, here's a quote from that sermon by Spurgeon. Experience and observation proves that it is more needful to preach the common doctrines of the gospel than any other truths. Those things which appear to be the most elementary and the most generally received are what we need to stress again and again. And that's what Charles Spurgeon said. So what are the essential components of a common faith, and why is it so important to know what we believe? Let me make an observation about the state of the evangelical church in America. The descriptive phrase, evangelical Christian, has gotten very watered down. Do you know that? The tent has gotten very large. So we must know what we believe and what it is that makes us Christians. What is the body of truth that we have to believe? L listen to these stats. In, in 2022, Gallup, a Gallup poll, less than half of self-proclaimed evangelical Christians believe the Bible is literally true. Less than half. Additionally, 51% of evangelicals said they believe God accepts the worship of all religions. That's a Ligonier poll. Is that true? Does God accept the worship of all religions? So we need to make some distinctions here. How common is our salvation with people who believe that? And before we go any further, I want to ask you this question, and I think this is really foundational. I really want you to hear this. Let me ask this. Is it divisive, is it divisive for me to focus on those things that we believe and that we believe all Christians should hold at a minimum? The answer is, hopefully everyone agrees, it is divisive to do this. And here's the main point, it cannot be made any other way. Adrian Rogers once said this, and I love this quote. Anyone heard of Adrian Rogers? Pastor Adrian Rogers said, I would rather be divided by truth than united by error. And that is very, very true. And, and that's what Paul's saying here when he says we are to focus on a common faith. We need to know what that is. So we have the benefit here at Grace Covenant of having a great statement of faith. And I pulled this from our website and I set out many of those things in the notes there. And that statement does a very good job identifying 
the things that I would call tier one things that we really must believe as Christians. Tier one issues. And tier two are things that people can debate about and they aren't necessarily determinative of whether someone's in the faith. But let's just go through a few of these. Number one, and this is set up first in our statement of faith, and that is the scriptures, the Bible. The 66 canonical books of the Bible are the inspired word of God. They're without error in the original writings and the complete revelation of God's will for the salvation of man, the only infallible guide for faith and living. Now, this is a major dividing line. It's a major dividing line, and there's a reason why it's first. Because the rest of our beliefs come from Scripture. So if we don't have an understanding of what our source authority is going to be, we're never necessarily going to arrive at the same place. We may spend some time in the next couple of weeks talking about what do you say to someone who comes to your door, and like someone from one of the cults, and they come to your door and they say, let's talk about so-and-so. And we'll look at this. One of the things we need to get straight at the very beginning is what is our authority? And we have it here, number one, and that's the Bible. It is our main dividing line between truth and error. Number two, the Trinity. There's one God, and he eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go, because Paul talks about that in Titus here. Number three, Jesus is true God and true man. He led a sinless life. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and on the third day he rose from the dead. So at a very minimum, to be part of a common faith, you must believe these things. Next, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to glorify Christ and to convict men of sin. He gives power to believers. He indwells them, empowers them, guides them, and gives them gifts for spiritual service. And by the way, that's an excellent, excellent summary of John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, which are two of the clearest chapters in all of the Bible on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if you have any questions about what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, spend some time reading and highlighting and meditating on John 14 and 16. And then five, salvation. Man can be saved. Hopefully everyone can knock this out of the park by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we are kept, the last phrase, eternally secure, which means we hold to the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. You cannot lose your salvation. Once you place your faith and trust in Christ, he keeps us and does not let us go. Now ask yourself again, which religious groups do not believe this? Groups that add anything to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are not, they're not part of a common faith, a common salvation. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, there's a sense in which this is a tier two issue, but there's a real sense in which this is a tier one issue. So let's talk about that. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, water baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances for believers. But the part that's really the tier one aspect of this is that these are not means of salvation. So they're ordinances, they're things that believers do. They're not means of salvation. So if a group, for instance, teaches baptismal regeneration, 
then they're, that's, that's adding to the gospel of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. Are you with me? It's so important that we, we understand this. It's so important. <clears throat> now there's some rules of thumb here. The first one is, there might be people in our midst who struggle with some of these things. So it takes a lot of discernment to determine on the front side, are we dealing with a believer who needs discipled, or are we dealing with an unbeliever? And the answer to that question, it dictates how we respond. The other thing is, it's very important to note that we are going to rub shoulders with people, we're going to see media and other things with people who do not believe this, and for those people, it's important that we don't allow them to influence us. So we have to know what we believe so that we are not influenced. And no matter who we're dealing with, please note Titus chapter 3, verse 2, we are to show perfect courtesy to all people. So if someone comes to me and they say, I totally disagree with you on that, guess what I say? Well, let's talk about that. We, just, we show courtesy. We talk about it. We instruct. And we do it patiently and lovingly. So that's a common faith. So look again, if you would, at Titus chapter 1, verse 4. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. And we've talked about a common faith. Next phrase. Grace and peace from God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about grace and peace for a minute. In the church, we hear a lot about grace. Would you agree? Everyone, we hear a lot about grace. There's songs, it's on Christian radio, we'll go to a funeral and maybe sing Amazing Grace, bagpipes will play. It's so much more encompassing than we might imagine. Grace is a gift that changes us. Look with me, if you would, at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And this is what Paul wrote about the grace of God. Essentially, it does two things. Number one, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the first thing it does. And, and the second thing, verse 12, it changes us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So here's my question for you, and it's the question we all have to ask ourselves. Have you been changed by grace? Or are you still walking in your sins? It's an invitation that we all have to come to Christ and allow His grace to do that work in our hearts and in our lives. Have we been changed by grace? And also, a corollary, do we extend grace to other people? Do we extend grace, or do we just hold people down when they sin against us and don't let them off the mat? And we show no grace. Even though we've been shown Massive amounts of grace because of the sin we've committed against the Holy God. The second thing, grace and peace, peace. I've often said, if there's something that we could bottle up and sell, and if we could sell peace and bottle it up, it would be the biggest selling pharmaceutical of all time. Why? Because there's so many people running around out those doors who have no peace. And they're searching for something Constantly trying to fulfill, find fulfillment and happiness. So let me ask you, are you a person of peace? Does peace characterize your life? Does it characterize my life? Do you have peace in your home? Do you have peace in your marriage? Do you bring peace to the church? If I were to ask your kids, 
is your home peaceful? Is your marriage peaceful? They'd be real honest with us, and they'd be able to let us know, well, you know, we could work on that. But this promise is available to us. And in many ways, well, well, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-control. In many ways, this is a you get out of what you put in. So if we sow peace, we're going to reap peace. Now let's look at the next phrase. So we've looked at Titus, why Titus was chosen. We've looked at um, a common faith, and then we talked about grace and peace. Now let's look at this next phrase. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want you to notice here that Paul is equating God and Jesus Christ as co-equal members of the Trinity. That's what Paul's doing there. Now, he doesn't specifically reference the Holy Spirit in this passage, but he does in other passages. So look with me, or just make it in your notes, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul wrote, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So in that passage, he equates three members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, would you agree that's pretty good authority if Paul talks about the Trinity? What if Jesus does? And he did. So let's look, or just put in your notes, Matthew 28, 19. Jesus said in the Great Commission, he also references the Trinity. And he, he, he said, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then finally, another one of our church fathers, Peter, did the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In verse 2, he, just, he talked about according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, and the obedience of Jesus Christ. So we have a pretty tight consensus among three writers of the New Testament about the Trinity. And that is also in our statement of faith, our doctrinal statement. So let's, let's now look at verse 5, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. Paul writes to Titus, to put what remains in order. Now I want you to see something. This is actually a medical concept. I was reading a commentary, Warren Wearsby said this. This is like going to the hospital and having a broken limb set back in place. That's what Paul's telling Titus to do. And he's applying that to the church, as if the church had this medical situation. It's exactly like when I dislocated my shoulder, playing flag football, and I, I knew right away, I have a little bit of a problem here, my shoulder's hanging off my arm, and I ran over the sidelines, and my beautiful wife, Kelly, drove me to the hospital, and they set my shoulder back in place. That's what Paul's telling Titus to do here. Set what remains in place. Now, how is he supposed to do that? We've already seen two ways. Number one, we said we're to build up believers so they can go out and do the work of the ministry. That's verse one. We're doing this for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The second thing he's supposed to do to set what remains in order is to preach the Bible. Verse three, at the proper time, God manifested his word through preaching. And the third thing I want you to do, Titus, is to go out and select elders in every town. So now we're gonna look at the qualifications of elders. Two observations before we get to those. Number one, the qualifications are aspirational. 
What do I mean by that? That means that even if you don't aspire to the office of elder, or even if you cannot serve in the office of elder, you can still look at this list of things and apply those to your life, as, because these are really good standards to live by. The second thing is, and I don't want to make the mistake of thinking that these, these qualifications require perfection, because the perfection is not called for here. How do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul said he wasn't perfect, and he said, those things that I want to do, I don't always do, and the things that I don't want to do, sometimes I do those. The real issue is, is our life on the right trajectory? It's a matter of the heart. Like, are, is this really what I want for my life, the things that we're listing here? And is this what I'm striving for? And I'm willing to be held accountable to. What I'd like to do now is read through the list, verses 6 through 8, and then spend just a minute or two talking about those, and then we will close. So let's look at the list of, verses, uh, of elder qualifications in verses 6 through 8. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, not be quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Let's talk through some of those criteria. Verse 6, and let's, let's just slowly walk through this. If anyone is above reproach, the overriding criteria for eldership is above reproach. It's stated twice. It's the only criteria that's stated two times, above reproach. That means, is there somebody who has something against you, knows something about you that disqualifies you as elder, or has reason to believe that your life does not live up to this standard? And it's legitimate. There's a lot of people who say things that aren't legitimate. But are you above reproach? Do we live a life that's above reproach? The second criteria listed, the husband of one wife. Now, it's hard for me to imagine how a woman, at least when this was written, could be the husband of one wife. So I take the position that an elder or a pastor because they're synonymous terms here, must be a man. There's two theological views for women leadership in the church. There's the egalitarian view and the complementarian view. Not compliment, like I want my wife to say nice things about me. I do. But com like complete, like we complete each other. Complementarian. Um, Complementarians largely believe that God created male and female to complement each other, and that is in the church and in the home. They have different roles in the church and in the home. That's what complementarians believe, and that's what I believe. Egalitarians roughly believe that there's really no difference in the created order in roles for men and women in the church or in the home. 
Now, as I already said, I believe in complementarianism because of the way that text is written. I think you'd have to torture it to get it to say something other than what it most plainly says. But here are four arguments you will hear more often than anything for the egalitarian view, and I want to talk about those for just a second. Everyone still with me? Are you awake this morning? All right. Number one, and you may have heard some of these, why would God give spiritual gifts to women if he did not expect them to use those gifts? Have you heard that argument, anyone? Okay. The answer to that is, it's a bit of a straw man. It's a bit of a straw man because I don't know any complementarians who say women should not use their spiritual gifts. What I believe is that the God who gave those gifts is the one who determines how they're to be used. So women are expected to use their gifts. The only role they literally cannot use those gifts in is either as a pastor or an elder. But they should use those gifts in any, every other way. Number two, oh, but Mark, there were lots of women who held high positions in Scripture. It's a very common argument. And the answer to that is, yes, we can talk about Phoebe, Priscilla, and Deborah. The question is not did they have ministry roles to play, because they did. The question is, was that ministry role serving as an elder in a New Testament church? Everyone understand the distinction there? Because they weren't serving as elder in the New Testament church. The third thing you hear more than anything is what Paul wrote here was just cultural. Like he wasn't establishing a rule that was to be applied at all times, in all settings, and even, in fact, in the church in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2024. He was saying that because that's what they were doing there in Crete. And to that I would say, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul clearly said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man and what's very interesting about that passage is, if you keep reading, Paul refers to the creation order of Adam and Eve, not the cultural mandate of what was going on in Crete or in Ephesus or in Corinth or anything else. He goes all the way back to the beginning of creation. And he basically says, this is God's created order. And the final thing you hear people say basically is, well, I just don't agree with Paul. Paul was a sexist, and we have to throw his writing out. Now, this is the same crowd that talks about the red letters. Like, we're only looking at the red letters at this point because Jesus, you know, he gets us. But Paul, not so much. He really didn't get us. And to that I'd say, what do you do with 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, all Scripture is God-breathed. That includes Paul's writing. All right, moving on in, in verse 6. Uh, elders' children must be believers. Now, this is interesting because Paul's, there's a companion passage in Timothy that the focus is not so much as the, on the product of the child being a believer, but how an elder runs his household. So in 1 Timothy 3, the elder is told, you must manage your household well. So the idea is that if I've done everything I can do so that my children can be believers, I've brought them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, I've taken my responsibility 
to teach them and train them scripturally, of taking it seriously, and then at some point if they walk in a different direction, that's not chargeable to the elder. That's the idea from 1 Timothy chapter 3, the parallel passage. And then the children cannot be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So we have for the second time that overriding standard. We must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. So this is the person who you can't tell them anything. They have all the answers. There's no humility. They think they know best. They're not willing to listen. That person does not make a good elder. They can't be quick-tempered. The person that flies off the handle very easily. And you know, sometimes I think anger might be one of the sins that the church talks about the least that we might spend a little more time discussing. Because I believe children are growing up in a lot of angry households. And a lot, there's a lot of reasons why people leave the church, but I think one thing might be a child who grows up in an angry household that on Sundays they're expected to put on a happy face. But an elder cannot be quick-tempered or a drunkard. Now, I know, I don't know how long we've gone. I don't want to take us too much longer, but I want to spend just a minute to talk about alcohol and drunkenness, okay? This is interesting because the parallel passage in Timothy, and I'd ask you to look at that, basically talks about deacons should not be given to much wine, whereas elders should not be given to wine. So there's an idea that elders should be much more careful in alcohol consumption than really anyone else in the church. This goes very well with Proverbs 31. There's a verse that says, it's not for kings to drink wine, or for princes to take strong drink, because it impairs their judgment. So I've listened to people like Warren Wearsby, no, I'm sorry, Erwin Lutzer at Moody Bible Church took that verse and he said, really, this is an admonition to all leaders that they should really seriously consider whether or not and how much they consume alcohol. But what is specifically prohibited here is drunkenness, okay? But I wanna give you some other guidelines too, because this is one of these things that calls for a lot of discernment and a lot of wisdom drinking in the church. You know, it's almost become fashionable in the church for people to have really loose standards about alcohol. I know a lot of young people, my kids tell me this, that they'll go to a Bible study and a lot of the young people in the Bible study will go out drinking afterwards. It's become very accepted. It's almost like a norm in many churches. But here's some general guidelines. It's a who, what, where, when, and why kind of thing. And so I wanna lay these out for you. First of all, who? While it might be conceivably permissible for people to drink, like I can't make an argument from scripture that alcohol is forbidden in all contexts. It might be permissible for some people to drink, but it might not be wise or advisable for many people to drink. And here are some of those people that it might not be wise or advisable to. First, leaders, we've already talked about that. Second, people who have had problems with alcohol in the past. If you have had problems with alcohol in the past, it's not advisable for you to drink. There's a whole body of literature that says you can't control your drinking if you've never been able to. It's also not advisable for people who have alcoholics in their family. 
because no one ever really knows. When am I going to become an alcoholic? What drink is it that's going to push me over that limit? My wife and I both had alcoholics in our family, and we've both decided that alcohol is not going to be a part of our lives. Because for us, it's a wisdom issue. Also, if you're underage, how many people, if you're in here and you're under 21, I can tell you proof positive it's not God's will for you to drink. Why? Because Romans 12 says we're supposed to obey civil authority. So I know it's not God's will for you to drink. And then finally, and let's get real practical, people that are on a budget should not drink. Why is that? Because alcohol is expensive. So if I only have $200 a month to spend at the store, why do I want to put part of that money into alcohol when I can buy nutritious foods for my family? And finally, oh, so who, what, where, when, and why? Where? It's also not good. Maybe you might consider not drinking in public because there might be people who see you drink and that gives them a license to drink. So think about this. I have a glass of wine and I'm sitting in a restaurant. A guy sees me and he knows I'm a Christian. Guess what he says? Oh, well, Mark drinks. So Mark had one glass of wine and I'm going to go have ten glasses of wine. That's how people think. People are always looking to justify what they do. And then also when and why. So when. If you drink in the morning, if you drink alone, if you drink often, then drinking might be a problem for you and you might not want to drink. Finally is the why, and that is if you're drinking just to get drunk or to take the edge off, as I've heard people say, or because you really can't handle the stress of your children, any of those things, it's probably a good idea for you to abstain from alcohol. And then let's finish up with um, verse 7 and 8. So verse 7 also says, An elder candidate cannot be violent or greedy for gain. So this is the person that spends 50, 60 hours a week at the office because they're not satisfied or content with what God has given them because they always want more. That person is not a good elder candidate. Verse 8, But an elder must be hospitable. Are you hospitable? Do you like welcoming new people? a lover of good, self-controlled, holy, and disciplined. And let's talk about the last two, self-controlled and disciplined, self-disciplined. Godly men must be rocks and pillars in the community, and our world and the church is suffering because we do not have enough men who are self-controlled and self-disciplined. Let's take that as a challenge this week. I hope that something I've spoken to you today has prompted in your heart or in your mind a desire to search for more, to be more, to do more in the church. And I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray that you would confirm in our hearts the truth of your word and help us to leave differently than we came. In Jesus' name, amen.